The Truth About College Admission podcast, as well as our book and workbook, are brought to you by Johns Hopkins Press. Visit press.jhu.edu to learn more about their wide selection of books and journals from the world's most trusted authors, experts, and sources. I am Brennan Barnard. I'm the Director of College Counseling at the Khan Schools Network, as well as the College Admission Program Advisor at the Making Caring Common Project at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And I am Rick Clark. I'm the AVP and Executive Director of Undergrad Admission at Georgia Tech. And speaking of Johns Hopkins, uh, Brennan, just back from Baltimore, uh, where Johns Hopkins, of course, is located. And we had the opportunity to go to our national conference, um, gather with about 7,000 other people in Charm City, which I have to say, I did not know that that was what it was called until we arrived. Um, (laughs) And, you know, lots of lots of different conversations, of course, right now. We've hit on a lot of these already. Um, things like, you know, of course, the Supreme Court case and AI and test optional and all the things. Um, changes changes in financial aid and uh, the counselor shortage. And I mean, yep. you, you name it. It was talked about. Yeah, for sure. And and um, certainly coming soon, we'll we'll be tackling a little more of FAFSA and, and the changes to financial aid. Um but, you know, it's it's fall right now and um, a lot of students working on applications, deadlines coming up here soon. Georgia Tech is on the earlier side for our Georgia residents on October 15th. And there's a couple other particularly Southern publics that have uh, early action deadlines then. And, and then November 1, of course, and November 15th are big early decision deadlines. Um, and so today we we got into a conversation with Aaron McGuire from Wake Forest, um, which we're going to get to in a bit. But you know, before we do, since you're working on the ground every day with students, um, you know, out at Con Lab School in California, and, and then, of course, counseling other students independently, um, I'm just kind of curious. I mean, early action, early decision. What what do those terms mean? What are they? Uh, how do they differ? And then when you're talking to students and, and a kid is thinking about a particular school that might either have both or just have one, how do you talk to them about, you know, weighing whether or not that's a good decision for them? Man, how much time do you have? <laughs> because <laughs> I mean, yeah, so so early action and early decision. Early action is, you know, the the program it's non-binding, so you can apply early and if you're, you know, and you learn earlier whether or not you're admitted. And early decision is binding and if you can apply to one school early decision, and if you're admitted, you are bound to attend, uh, assuming all the financial uh, situation works out. Um, I, I mean, on top of that, then it gets even more more complicated because there's early decision two, a second round of early decision. There's restrictive early action that some schools have, meaning you can apply early action and you're not bound, but you can't apply early decision to any other schools. I mean, there's it's a, it's like a it's a word mashup, um, but. Um, you know, as I talk to students about specifically about early decision, about the binding program, I really uh, hesitate when students come to me and they say, uh, I want to apply early decision. I just don't know where, which is not mm-hmm. a great approach. Right. And mm-hmm. and and it's unfortunate because I think students and families are feeling pressure uh, because in many cases, admit rates for the early decision rounds are sometimes double what they are in the regular pool. And so. They're, if they're thinking strategically, they're thinking, okay, I need to find some place where I'm going to apply. And and that's just the wrong approach to applying to college, right? I mean, 
it's this um, kind of a gamification of college admission. It, yeah. it doesn't really talk about the 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 why of the process and the experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's my biggest hesitation with it. I have lots of other issues, and you and I have talked about with with early decision, including kind of the um, the inequity of it and how it's uh, for students who for who you know, financial aid is really important. It can disadvantage them having the opportunity to compare packages and um, also for students with less resources that might not kind of have the counseling to apply early. Uh, there's just, it's layered. Yeah, no question. I mean, yeah, I'm kind of of mixed opinion as we've discussed in the past. Like, look, I mean, there's some kids out there who, um you know, maybe maybe their parents went to that school. Maybe they maybe it's the school in there. Maybe it's their state flagship. Um, it's something they've been exposed to. They're excited about, and and they know. Um, I mean, I can think of many students that I've worked with professionally, and even back to my own high school experience, where you know there were students who were like, "This is where I want to go. I know it's where I want to go. It's my number one choice." And and you know, in some ways, I love early action, and and I guess early decision too, because you know, let's take some of the stress out of the application process and actually give some enjoyment back to the senior year. There's a lot to be said for a kid finding out in December that they're in and they can just enjoy, you know, the rest of their senior year. I'm all for that. Um, But, you know, to your point, like, I also see where kids are saying what they are to you on the ground, which is, you know, I, I feel like I have to do this. So now I just got to figure out where I'm going to do this. And, and that's that's not ideal. Yeah, well, and my issue also with some of the early action plans and things like that is that is when schools, when colleges are taking the majority of their class, you know, well over 50 percent, sometimes, you know, over 70 percent. I mean, I mean, when they're taking these huge swaths of their applicant pool early action yeah, and it really disadvantages the student who you know, maybe hasn't started the the admission search and, and process earlier um, because they just don't have the 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 support to do so. And so they get kind of left out in the cold. Yeah. And there's there's no doubt about that. And I mean, obviously, being on the other side of that. Um, well, two things. One, I mean, we know that there's not going to be any restrictions or mandates put in place at the federal level after what we went through with the Department of Justice a couple of years ago you know, kind of regulating um, timing and and recruitment of students. I mean, they're not going to say, okay, you can only take 50% of your class or make 50% of your offers out of this round or that round. Um, That's not going to happen. But, you know, from the, from the college side, I do see, you know, the, the business of it, which is if you're ED early decision and you can lock in a, a decent amount of your class, you know how many dollars you have left to invest right. and spend to get the rest of your class. I understand the dollars and cents and the sort of reality of that. I also understand that yield, right? The number of kids that say yes to your offer is obviously when it's a binding situation like ED, much higher, or even EA yield is much higher because these are kids who are really putting you um, you know, on priority. And so that has benefits to the college for a number of reasons. One, of course, yield, you know, ends up affecting things like bond ratings. It ends up affecting things like U.S. News and World Report rankings and things like this. Mm-hmm. But but actually, you know, the other thing that it does is when you lock in kids and you get deposits, yes, you need to still inform them, but they're they're yours, right? You've pretty much got them and you, you try to hold them. But 
you can put a lot more of your energy into then getting and shaping the rest of your class. So like there is the sort of, again, timeline that comes in. So there's the dollars piece, but there's the reality of time too, which is everything gets super compressed. And so schools are trying to hustle to get their class. And if they've got a good bit of it locked, they can allocate those human or financial resources, you know, other ways. So as you said before, like I would never script it this way, but I, it's like, it's more nuanced than a lot of people say, because you go on social media or, you know, some of the stuff I've seen written even recently, it's like dismantle EA and ED and, you know, like just blow the whole thing up. And I just don't think that that's reality. Right. You can't, you can't talk about it in a void. And I mean, this is why, this is why we had Eric on because, you know, I think he's, he and his team are, are really thinking about this innovatively and, 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 and we'll, I'll let him talk a little more about um, their new EA program for first generation students. But I hope you'll listen to kind of how he's thinking about this and especially as a first generation student himself. And and um, so I, I think it was a great conversation. Yeah. All right. And then my quick one for people to listen to is a little bit of what we just talked about. But um, look, every school has its own institutional mission. And we try to not only put out messages, you know, if you look at alumni magazines, if you look at student newspapers, if you look at what people are putting on social media or their websites, like they're trying to say, this is who we are. This is our culture. This is what we're about. And they're giving signs towards that. Actually, dates are also signs. And so what Eric's done at at Wake Forest is he said, we're indicating that first generation students are a priority for us and we want them to apply. And so the way you set up your calendar is also indicative of your institutional mission. To your point from earlier, you know, restrictive early action, ED1 and ED2, those things are not random. Those have come into place because of competition. They've come into place because of the ecosystem of higher education, and they exist for a reason. And so I think students and and counselors and families can learn a lot if they pay attention to the fact that everything these colleges are doing is done with intent and strategy. And they are signs towards what they're trying to accomplish. So I hope people will kind of gather a little of that from our conversation with Eric McGuire. Let's get to it. Today, we are joined by Eric McGuire, Vice President for Enrollment at Wake Forest University. He has led enrollment and financial aid at a number of colleges and universities, including uh, my alma mater. And actually, Eric brought me out of the bullpen after a couple of years as a stay-at-home father. I had been a, a high school counselor and Eric hired me on as an, as an admission officer probably almost 20 years ago now, Eric. And It's uh, been a minute, yeah. Yeah, it sure has. And um, as Wake Forest's president said when he announced Eric's appointment, Eric is a thought leader in admission and we are happy to have him with us today. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, Eric, we appreciate it. Um, I know when I was at Wake Forest last year, we talked a little bit about this, but uh, I kind of started my college admission career there. Uh, and as a Tar Heel, always appreciated them taking a chance on me. But um, they did put me in like sort of a glorified closet. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> otherwise it was a good experience. My, my my colleague Don Calhoun had mentioned that actually. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I called it a nook and and uh probably six months after I left, they like totally blew it up and incorporated it into someone else's office. And I think that was symbolic. So <laughs> anyway, um so glad to have you. And you know, Brennan mentioned this a little bit, but I'd be kind of curious to hear, and I think others would enjoy knowing kind of the path that led you to wake, um, some of the other places you've been and the work you've done and just how that prepared you and, and why you were interested in in coming to Wake Forest. 
Well, I'll back up just for a second to say that I, I first became interested in higher ed and the admission profession as an undergrad. I went to a small liberal arts college in the Northeast and uh, Muhlenberg College uh, had a really transformative experience and was awestruck by the transformative nature of higher education and, and how that could impact uh, students and, and, and families uh, and their lives. And so um, uh, after uh, going to grad school uh, for higher ed administration, working in the admission profession for a number of years, I was able to serve as a VP for enrollment, first at Ithaca College, uh, transitioned that to uh, Franklin and Marshall, where, where Brendan and I had some, some overlap, uh, and um, had uh, an opportunity. I was, I was actually on a podcast that the president at the time of Wake Forest heard, and they were doing uh, having some transition in their enrollment leadership at the time. He had heard me on that podcast, and, and um, we had a call and a conversation. I wasn't really looking to make a professional transition at that point, but we really all um, some important points for the institution moving forward in, in uh, uh, aligned ways. And that conversation led to others. And, and I made the transition here in the summer of 2019. Excellent. We'll, we'll be careful where we share this podcast. Uh, please do. Yes. <laughs> I, your, your, your administration, every time you go on a podcast, they must be like, oh, no, here we go. You never know where these things can lead, right? <laughs> Well, Eric, um, you know, Rick and I have had many, many spirited exchanges on this podcast and our writing and conversation about um, early action and early decision programs and who they serve, who they don't. And this fall, Wake Forest added an early action option, right, uh, specifically for first generation college students. And I, I know I believe you were a first generation college student yourself. Is that correct? This is true. Yes. First generation kid myself. Yep. Well, can you can you share a little bit with our listeners about why you created this program and kind of how it works? You know, it was, it was very organic in terms of how it was originally created. I was talking with uh, my colleague Dawn about an entirely different uh, topic, and was sharing with her that um, as part of the strategic plan for enrollment that I'm I'm writing and putting together, wanted to explore this topic of early action. There were some other of our peer institutions that have recently added uh, EA plans and and wanted to explore that topic for Wake Forest. And she said to me, you know, we used to have an, an early action option that we offered for North Carolinians a number of years ago. And I was surprised by that conversation for two reasons. One, I'd been at the institution for four years and I'd never even heard that. So I was that was news to me first and foremost. Uh, and secondly, I'd never heard of an early action plan that was applied to a subgroup of the marketplace, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so um, and, and North Carolinians, I think, makes a lot of sense, uh, given that is our, our geographic backyard. Uh, however, I was pondering a bit, what other audiences do I think could really benefit from a more dedicated early action policy? And I note within our early decision plan that we have relatively few first-generation students that take advantage of early decision. And I, I understand why. I think for a lot of those families, in, in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, they want the ability to sit down at the kitchen table with a variety of financial aid packages and understand what their out-of-pocket costs are at a number of institutions and be able to do some, some comparison shopping, for lack of a better term. And so um, this was an opportunity for us to potentially signal to first-generation students that we were interested in their, their applications and enrollment at the institution, their perspective on campus and what they bring to our campus community um, by having this program that's dedicated to them and really one that we think could fit them in this application process, not requiring the commitment of early decision, allowing them to have an, an, an answer in, in terms of their admissibility early in the process, and then giving them some time to work through the financial aid process and to be able to sit down thoughtfully with those other offers of admission and financial aid to really understand what the best fit institution for them might be. And so for, for us, it sort of um, 
uh, offered the best of both worlds, and um, and it, it really came together quite quickly for us then over the summer. Once this idea originally formed, um, I took it to our, our provost and president. They both were um, were, were uh, interested in, in in progressing and moving it forward. And uh, lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, we have that active and, and available on our application. That's great. Well, and it's it's a great signal, right? I mean, it, it really says you matter and we, we want you here. Hmm. That's what we're hoping. That's what we're hoping. Yeah, and you hit on this, but I just want to go back real quick for folks listening who may not kind of catch that primary distinction between early decision and early action to say, you know, that early action, as you said, allows you to apply to multiple places to hear back to get those financial packages and then to ultimately make a decision. Whereas early decision is binding and it is saying you're my first choice. And, and if you admit me, um, you'll come. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. Georgia Tech, um, where I am, we have early action one and early action two. Early action one is just for Georgians. And then early action two is for non-Georgians. And so we separate out the timelines, both on when you apply as well as when you hear back. And you know, it's interesting, I think, because students oftentimes just see deadlines, they see labels, and they don't think a whole lot about any deadline that exists, exists for a very specific strategic purpose for that institution. And you just right. hit on some really good points around that. And so, you know, just kind of within the whole college admission ecosystem and sphere, it's like, there's so much more going on behind the scenes that students don't necessarily recognize. But I think, like Brennan said, what you're doing is really indicating to students, like, you're a priority. We we want to we want to be really clear about you know our hope for you to apply and and how we're going to give you choices along the way, which is which is awesome. Um, I'm kind of curious what kind of responses you've gotten to this point. What are you hearing from students, counselors, and how's your team going about um, you know conveying this message out there? You know the response we've gotten right now or thus far, and it's only been a few months since this has been announced, so it's still very early on, uh, has been overwhelmingly positive from the counselors that we've talked to thus far. Um, we've we've received positive receptivity there. Um, some of the families that we've shared that with, our alumni base has responded, and and even those who were not first generation would say, you know, my my father was first generation, but he and he would love this kind of opportunity that that we've put forth, and it makes me so proud that my institution is doing this for a group of students that may not be my background, but but it also is is one that we recognize is under underserved at the institution. So, um, and in higher education more broadly, so. It's been very positively received. We've actually um, inspired a few uh, gifts and, and uh, at the institution uh, to support other initiatives for first-generation students. So, uh, so far, so good in terms of, of that receptivity that we've seen. And I'll also note that um, I think that the program in and of itself provides a really good front door for a couple of, of programs that we have on campus for first-generation students. We have a program called Magnolia Scholars that provides scholarship and programming for first gens, as well as one uh, called First in the Forest that my colleague Nate French uh, runs and operates. And both of those programs have um, are, are wonderful uh, support structures for first gen students once on campus. We wanted to make sure that we had that adequate pipeline early on in the recruitment process to really bring the best and the brightest to, to the institution and into those programs. So I think it's serving a lot of institutional needs and also doing well by our families in, in the meantime. That's great. Yeah, I really look forward to I mean, in the counselor community, it's been, you know, really been really well received. And I think people are really excited about it. And, and hopefully it will be kind of a um, a model for other schools to really latch on to and, and think creatively about about deadlines and about kind of access and and who who these different policies uh, are for and are not for. 
I would imagine that there is at some point a NACAC presentation in our future in which, you know, we, we articulate how this uh, played out in terms of applications and impacted the institution. Uh, we're probably a few years away from that at this point in time, but um, I would imagine that's a story we want to tell. And honestly, to the extent that it can um, impact policy and help improve pathways for other uh, students at other institutions, we take no pride in ownership and, and encourage others to consider those options if it's for the best of students. All right. Well, we'll start singing it from the rooftops. Uh, you know, I know another program you've been actively involved in is the American Talent Initiative over the years. And just wonder if you could say a little bit about that and what the impact's been there. Yeah, I think the ATI has done great work. Uh, Wake Forest is not currently a part of the ATI. Uh, we've been um, part of that in the past, and, and some of my previous institutions has been have been part of the ATI. Um, we are sort of going it alone to, to uh, outside of that organization right now to try and uh, chart a path to improve our first gen, our Pell, some of our underrepresented student um, uh, representation on campus. I'm happy to say and report that uh, a number of those marks and metrics were up for the class that we just recently enrolled at the institution, which is a really positive sign for us and that we're moving in the right direction there. Um, but I think that the ATI for the right institution um, is, is a great resource in terms of sharing ideas. You know, we just talked about this first-gen idea and how we can learn from one another. And there's others that are that are floating around the profession. It's a great opportunity to share ideas among colleagues and, and learn from one another. Uh, it also presents some, some real statistical horsepower in terms of the, the running the numbers behind the scenes to understand the data uh, behind some of those questions of access and equity and representation. Uh, so there's a, it's a great organization uh, that, that supports it. And um, I, I applaud all the institutions that are part of that or like Wake are, are working more independently, but nonetheless in that same direction to try and improve access and equity for students. Right. And and it gives some accountability too, right? I mean, so when you're, when you're part of an initiative like that, I mean, it sounds like internally at, at Wake, you you have that accountability to each other and that you're doing great work. But I think for some of those schools, it's really being part of that collaborative uh, effort has really kind of allowed that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, American Talent Initiative, this is uh, something we can put in the show notes um, for folks to check out a little bit more of the work that they're doing there. Um, when you were talking about some of the first gen efforts at Wake Forest, I was thinking of a, a group called I'm First Gen, and we'll put some information about the, the you know, that in the show notes as well. But, um, you know, on the ATI, I mean, this is a list of schools that, uh, you know, have said, hey, we're, we're really committed to trying to increase uh, the number of, you know, low socioeconomic students or, or challenged socioeconomic students um, on our campuses. And that just makes me think of lists and rankings and, and rankings have just come out uh, this week. And so I think for a lot of people listening, um, you know, I, I feel like rankings are one of those things that get a lot of play on the interwebs and higher ed and, and spin around a little bit and maybe some attention from the press and, and alums and people pay attention. For the general high school student, 17-year-old sitting out there in Kernersville, North Carolina, or, you know, some far-flung place around the country that's that's listening to this, how would you say that that, that student should take this information in? Um, you know, how do you approach the rankings? What 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 matters? What doesn't matter? How do you how do you absorb that information and use it in a constructive way in your college search or maybe in your decision-making process? Um, what, what's your take on that? Well, I, I'll say that um, I think it has to be taken with a bit of a grain of salt in that, um, you know, the rankings formula themselves have have recently changed and, and changed fairly dramatically in terms of how it positions institutions. 
And so um, the the algorithm behind the rankings had seen some significant revisions. And I think that as I'm beginning to dig into that, I see some, some changes for the positive that higher ed has been kind of calling for. And I see some changes that, at least for Wake, are, are to the negative because it, it um, de-emphasizes some of the things that we believe are important in terms of the quality of the educational experience that are, that are no longer valued or, or as recognized in the rankings process. And so... Um, I think they can be a, a tool, and I have to say, from from my own sort of bias and perspective, I'm I'm one of the folks on on a college campus who's uh, provided a survey to contribute my thoughts uh, about colleges and universities, and I have never in my professional career participated in that survey, and so I I, I sort of sidestep that, um, and I let others uh, engage in that space should should, should they uh, so choose, but it's not one that I've I've um, engaged uh, terribly much uh, throughout my professional career. I think for students, they can use that uh, should they view that as a, as a resource and, and perhaps as a starting point. But um, I think you have to pretty quickly move beyond that and recognize that there are going to be some factors that are important to you in terms of your own college search and selection process that don't show up in the rankings. And so I, for example, when I was looking and going through the college search and selection process was, was focused on small liberal arts institutions. I had been at some sports camps at larger universities and just felt like they were cities unto themselves and not something that I wanted to navigate as an 18-year-old. Now, I obviously went to a grad school at a, at a larger institution, was ready for that at that point in time, but was not what I was looking for at 18. So a rankings that includes a bunch of you know, top flagship institutions isn't necessarily that that helpful to me because it's not what I'm looking for in that process. And there's a number of other examples in terms of what one is looking for may not be reflected in those rankings. And therefore, it really limits the value of those rankings in, in one's college search and selection process. So I would say it, it, you're much better served working with some trusted advisors and college counselors in that process, uh, should you have access to them um, and, and other organizations that can help students who know the institutions, who know as you're making some of your, um, as you're as you're building out your uh, descriptors and characteristics that you're looking for an institution, uh, will be able to match to those some schools that really fit the description. Yeah, I mean, Rick just brought this up to get me riled up, Eric. So okay, <laughs> this, this is this is why. I mean, he just loves to get me uh, get me going. But I I think this, um, you know. Like you said, I mean, I think you answered it perfectly. And and the thing about the the forms that you're sent to fill out about other schools, the kind of uh, reputation um, surveys, the, the ironic thing is you're probably better uh, s positioned to fill those out than most people. And and yet, you know, you don't do it. The fact that is it often gets done by people who don't really know other schools. And I would say that my, my perspective is really on, on Wake Forest and how we we fulfill our mission as an institution. That's my focus in this role and then how we build the best class for our institution. I'm not really paying attention to what's happening at, at you know, Georgia Tech every day. And so how how can I, you know, um, properly rate and understand uh, what how they're doing and how that relates to their mission as an institution? Because those those vary as well. But yeah. I bet you like the gifts that the other uh, admission offices send you trying to uh, get you to give them good marks. Um, <laughs> I receive a lot of, uh, of, of messages in my inbox and, and through via snail mail. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, the, the thing is, we, we talked about uh, AI with Sal Khan a couple of weeks ago and uh, on our first episode this season. And the, the ability of AI to support students in doing a search and kind of dialing down on some of the different areas that they're really excited about 
allows that match to happen in ways that it wasn't able to happen when U.S. News and World Report, you know, back in the 60s or whenever they started doing doing this um, or maybe the 80s. Maybe I, I think it's mid 80s. Yeah, 80s, mid 80s um, that, you know, now there's such access to so much information that kind of going with a passive ranking like that is just kind of a fool's errand. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what we've said in our book and what we've said in the podcast is, um, you know, you should never just boil things down to one number. It's, it's impossible to do. And the bigger thing is for students to be asking, you know, what matters to you? And um, it's we love, I think, as Americans in particular, but maybe just as humans in general, to put things on lists and to try to you know, rank these things, but that's never going to apply. Even just the three of us on this call are going to have different priorities, different needs, different interests, and that's going to lead us down different paths that could never be enumerated in a way that just can be applicable to to everyone. So now we really appreciate your take. Just real quickly, I, I appreciate also the perspective that um, Way Forrest has had on this and, and our president, Susan Wente, who has, has said that we we have not in our past, and we won't moving forward chase the rankings. Instead, we're we're mission driven, and and we're looking for looking to be the best Wake Forest that we can be, not necessarily to to climb the rankings. Well, and policies like you laid out with the early action program for first generation students is a prime example of that. Right. Um, the the one the one last thing I'll say about rankings is the the one fun thing about it is my my brother and my younger brother and my dad share the same alma mater, and they dropped eleven points in the rankings this year. So it's fun just to tell them that it's the bragging rights. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. They're, yeah. they're no longer as good, right? They got <laughs> so much worse in one year, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> when nothing changed, right? right. That's right. At, yeah. at the university. Same institution as it was yesterday. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, I am going to just ask you to rank one thing and, and then we'll close with this. Um, mm. You know, you, you've got so much experience, multiple different places. Um, and I'm just kind of interested, like, if you, had one thing that you just want to have parents or students hear from you as a as a leader, as as a first gen college student yourself, as someone that's worked with tons of students over the years, like, you know, what what would you want them to know um, or to just hear from you about their college search and selection process? You know, I'm closer to this question than you may think. I've got a, a, a son who just started ninth grade. My daughter's in middle school. We're, we're kind of creeping up on this college search and selection process ourselves. And so, um, and I'm, I'm thinking about this from the from the parent lens as well, not just as a professional. So I'll have uh, maybe even some more insights to share in a few years. But I think in the meantime, and this goes back to some of our previous conversation when we're talking about the rankings, you know, and, and if you're starting with what's important to you in that college search and selection process, that, that's an inner, uh, you know, gut, kind of a gut check or assessment that you have to do and understand, have you having stepped on a few college campus, what resonates, what doesn't resonate, um, take those characteristics from those visits and say, okay, what are some of the places that do this best? Um, and, and I would say that that process really starts with the interests of the applicants. And, and frankly, most 16, 17, 18 year olds aren't going to know that until they're able to really experience some of that firsthand. And so um, it is a little bit, it seems a little bit uh, like you're finding your way in the dark at first. Um, and then as you get out to, to visit some of those campuses and explore institutions, uh, you find some things that resonate and it begins to add some clarity to that process. And then you can really begin to shape uh, your search and selection around some of those uh, dynamics that really stand out. Um, so 
that's the the approach that um, that I would advocate for um, that I think leads to an outcome that is the best fit for for students in that process and, and ultimately allows them to enroll at an institution that is not driven by say prestige or rankings as we were describing but really uh, based upon where where that institution or where that student might fit institutionally. Well, we are grateful for you shining the light on some of that darkness uh, so people don't have to stumble around and uh, really appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today, Eric. I enjoyed the conversation, gentlemen. Hope to see you in Baltimore in a few days. Yeah, thanks, Eric. All right, be well. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Eric McGuire. He had some uh, really good points, I think, about um, you know how to approach the college search and selection experience. Um, but then also some really um, important encouragement, especially to uh, first-generation students. And again, we're going to put in the show notes some resources there that we hope you will take advantage of. Um, in closing, we did want to thank our partner, Grown and Flown, um, who's an excellent resource for parents of high school students. Um, they have a well website that is full of expert content on college admission and all aspects of raising teens. They also have an affordable monthly membership called College Admission, Grown and Flown for Families who have questions about admissions and how to pay for college. Uh, we have a link in the show notes for that that provides a three-week uh, free subscription. Grown and Flown also uh, brings weekly live sessions from reliable admission experts who answer questions, share insight, and provide clarity and transparency. Um, this site also has over 100 stored videos that you can go back and see past sessions on, and that is free to members. Um, just recently, they interviewed Andrew Palumbo, um, did a behind the scenes on college admission from a former admission dean on September 28th, Jeff Levy, um, talking about the FAFSA and uh, the delay of that this year and what that's going to mean for families. Um, Allison Slater-Tate on October 5th, who is a good friend and a great um, voice in this space, um, talking about the Common App. And then I will be on there October 18th. Uh, to talk about a variety of admission issues and sort of what's happening trend-wise in the landscape of college admissions. So we hope you will check out Grown and Flown. Thank you so much for listening to the Truth About College Admission podcast, and we will be back soon with another episode.